Well, hey, everybody, this is Mike Honig with the University of Iowa Center for Disabilities and Development, welcoming you to another episode of Disability Exchange. Disability Exchange is a podcast dedicated to elevating and centering the voices of people with disabilities and their families by giving them the opportunity to share their own stories. Uh, we are supported uh, through funds from the University of Iowa Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, and we have a great partnership with the Midwest Public Health Training Center, which is a part of the University of Iowa College of Public Health. And we are very excited about our, our guest um, that's going to be joining us for the podcast today. But before we introduce him, I'd like to turn things over to my illustrious co-host, Judy. So Judy, go ahead and introduce yourself. I am Judy Worth. I'm here at the university's Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities as well. And I am very excited about our guest today because I have the good fortune of being able to sit on Iowa Governor's Developmental Disability Planning Council with Rob and um, the perspectives and the stories that he brings, his intelligence and business savvy are just wonderful to have as we are talking about issues of disability. So Rob, we'd like to welcome you, Rob Rosenboom. Rosaboom from Sheldon, Iowa is here to join us today. Rob, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, yeah, Rob, Rob Rosaboom, actually an Iowa native. I was born in Des Moines. I was raised on a farm until I was nine years old in Pella, Iowa. Then my dad changed careers when he was about I think 35, 36, left the farm, became a, a pastor, a minister, uh, went to seminary, had uh, a couple churches. And so, yeah, at nine years old, I, I stopped being a farm kid and started being a city kid, which was a whole different, different ballgame. And we left Iowa, spent time in Michigan, where my dad went to school. First church was in Minnesota, then moved back to Iowa halfway through my, my junior year. Uh, with my parents. And, and then when I graduated, I went on to Phoenix, Arizona. And by the time I got back a year and a half later, my parents left and went to Knoxville, Iowa on a, on a new uh, church start. And so I've spent time in, in different states, but the disability and why disability is so close to my heart is there's three in our family. And when I was that kid growing up on a farm, I really didn't realize I was different but I have an older sister and a younger brother. My older sister walked on her toes and actually the University of Iowa is the place we went. Uh, they, they were concerned on why she walked on her toes. And we went to the University of Iowa to get checked out and found out that my sister was diagnosed with a disease called muscular dystrophy. At that time, they were looking at a form called Becker. It was years later that we learned it, it's actually limb girdle. And so my sister had it, which means my brother and I now need to be tested. And I was tested, also diagnosed with limb girdle muscular dystrophy. And then my brother, nope, no, no symptoms, no anything. He, he grew up with, with two siblings, uh, quote unquote, having a disability where he did not. And so that's kind of, kind of the background of our story. I started as a farm kid, became a city kid. Uh, really didn't notice a whole lot of a difference until about sixth grade. That's that's when I started realizing, okay, things things are different for me. 
That's quite a story. Well, I'm a, we have I'm a little bit of a kindred spirit here. I went to a college in Pella at Central, so I, I got, to, got to have that experience being in, a, in that rural area, so I'm pretty, pretty familiar with it. And so re- refresh us on the timeline a little bit. Your, your dad um, had a, a career change and you moved yes. to Michigan. What, what, uh, how old were you then? I was nine when he left the farm. And when okay. he graduated from seminary, I was now 12. And so and that's we a, left Michigan, moved to Minnesota. So your um, muscular dystrophy diagnosis was going on and, and your sister's kind of right in the middle of all this moving. Mm-hmm. Did that create a lot of stress? Were you the type of person and family that just kind of rolled with it? I mean, I guess you probably don't exactly roll with it because it's a, it is life-changing. But how? talk to us a little bit about how that impacted you and your family as you were going through so many other changes as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, so when I left the farm at nine, this sounds crazy, right? When I left the farm, I'm a kid. What, what do I know? But that's all I knew. I would wake up every morning, look out the, the window and see what my dad was wearing. And I dressed exactly the same. It was everything I loved, everything I knew. I had so much fun being out there, whether we were harvesting crops or we were working with animals, just loved it. So at nine, when he sat us down, I learned something. I learned that the things that I love get taken because that's what I knew and, and it wasn't going to be there anymore. So this stress of moving is there a little bit of excitement in, in moving? Yeah, there is. But there's also this scariness of everything I've ever known as a child, a nine-year-old child, is now gone. I can vividly remember seeing the moving truck show up and, and people loading. And now you're, you know, as a nine-year-old kid, it feels like you're moving forever away. Michigan's a, a jaunt from from Iowa. And all of a sudden, from being out on the farm and being with your dad every day, he's in school, you're in a city, uh, the, the culture is different, the school is different. And all of a sudden, you've been told because you were diagnosed at five with this disease called muscular dystrophy, but you don't understand it. You don't understand what really what the diagnosis is all about or, or what it's going to do to you. And so not only are you a different kid in a different city, in a city, you've never actually lived in a city before, but you end up in a different culture uh, because where we went to school was different. I, I, I mean, we had many, many multiple uh, ethnic backgrounds, which was a great learning experience, but, but it was different from what I was used to and what I grew up with. And then, you know, you grow up, this, this is during the Michael Jordan era. And I always grew up with the, the belief that you can be cut and still become the greatest. You know, you can be cut from your basketball team, but the harder you work, the harder you try, the better you become. What I didn't understand was I can't beat this disease on my own. And I also didn't know that it would progress the way that it would. So all of a sudden, you're a kid in a new school running PE classes and you're like, well, I should be able to beat that kid. Why didn't why didn't I run faster than that kid? And so you have your own internalization of what's happening that I didn't even see it so much in my sister. I was so busy focused on me, which is extremely selfish, but trying to fit in, trying to make friends, tr- sure. trying to be the kid that's not noticed because he's different. And so not only is that happening, but my dad's going to school. And, and I mean, to be honest, 
It wasn't the nicest neighborhood we lived in. It's the first time I've ever got jumped and mugged. And I mean, I'm only a 10-year-old kid and I'm experiencing all of this. And so you're processing all of that. And then it, it was a couple of years later, I asked my mom, you know, how did they deal with it, right? That was the question. How, how do we process this change and, and my parents? And I used to get frustrated. And I asked them, why do we never talk about it? as a family. We didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about muscular dystrophy. We didn't really talk about being different. And I said, why did we never talk about it? And my parents are baby boomers. They grew up in, in the era of this. They said, if we didn't talk about it, it didn't exist. And I said, that's a load of crap. I said, I had to deal with it day in, day out. Just because we swept it under the rug doesn't mean there's not dust underneath the rug. Right. And so when you have this mentality of if we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist, you as a child have to figure out how do, how do I process this? How do I deal with this? Because this, this is a reality. I've heard doctors say that it's going to go this way or that way, but I don't, I don't believe them. But yet, why am I not measuring up to everybody else? So you asked me about the stress level. My stress was through the roof. Left what I loved, what I knew, what I was comfortable with. I'm in a new school with new individuals, and I'm not measuring up to the rest of them. Yeah, it was in yeah, it was a rough neighborhood. So three years of, well, this is interesting. Good call, Dad. <laughs> Way to change careers. So yeah, it, 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 I would say for me personally, it was extremely stressful. Yeah, that sounds like it. You know, for. In the event we have a listener who perhaps doesn't understand what muscular dystrophy is, would you mind giving them the Cliff Notes version? Sure, absolutely. So, so muscular dystrophy, uh, really, I, I hate to use the word became famous, but it's what Jerry Lewis fought for 50 years. It was called the Jerry Lewis National uh, Day Telethon or whatever. My wife and I have actually been on it in 2001, 2002, met Jerry Lewis. So why, why, did, why did they host this? Because individuals diagnosed with muscular dystrophy, and there are 43 different types or, or umbrellas. ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease, falls under muscular dystrophy, even though it's not necessarily muscular dystrophy. So you can have respiratory issues, and obviously muscular dystrophy means muscles. They atrophy, they, they go away. So they progress. It's a progressive. Currently, my form is um, incurable. There's not a pill out there. There's not a regimen. There's, there's not a treatment that you can take. So as you get older, I'll use limb girdle as an example. It's very similar to the way it sounds. It's your girdle area and your limbs. So you lose your shoulder muscle. You lose your biceps. You lose your thighs. You lose your core to where maybe you could walk as a child, you could run as a child, you could play sports as a child. And as you grow up, it affects everybody differently. They told me, Rob, you will be in a wheelchair full time at 30 years old. I didn't believe them at 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. I didn't even believe them when I was 30 because I still wasn't in a, a wheelchair full time. You see me today at 45. I'm still not in it full, full time. But the reality is there, this progressive wasting diseases. My shoulders are not what they were. My back is not. My thighs aren't. Uh, your muscles just deteriorate over time. 
And that's what muscular dystrophy is like. And if you have a, a respiratory, say SMA or something, it can kill you. Uh, our forms should not shorten our life expectancy, but there are uh, forms that, that definitely bring in a challenge. Boy, there's so many places we could go from there. Um, but I'm going to throw you one that you may not be expecting. But so I, um, for you listeners out there, before I came to work at the USED at the Center for Disabilities and Development, um, I worked for a Center for Independent Living, which is a, a nonprofit uh, advocacy organization. Um, and that was actually quite a number of years ago now, back in the early 90s. But right about that time, there was a group that had come together. And actually, I don't know when it started. Um, but it was called Jerry's Orphans. And they were people who um, felt like that, and some of them had, you know, most of them actually had been on the, the Jerry Lewis telethon and ended up feeling like, well, it, he was really trying to almost put a charity model out there. And they were out to be, to show what their capabilities were and that, that this was um, demeaning in some way. Mm. I'm curious if you ever were, have heard of that group and what, what your thoughts were. I mean, you, it sounds like you were on, on the show as well on the yep. telethon. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? That's a great question, you know, because you often wonder when you show somebody's story, you really don't want to demean them. But at the same time, you want to give individuals the reality of the situation. Mm -hmm. My initial thought, I have not heard of Jerry's orphans. I've heard of Jerry's kids. And obviously I became one of those as an adult. What was my first take? The Muscular Dystrophy Association, until I met the president and vice president and Jerry Lewis, I thought to myself, why do we raise all this money? Over a billion dollars has been given and we still don't have a cure. Where's this going? I mean, what, 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 what are we doing with all these resources? Now I get the opportunity to fly to L.A., meet them personally and share our story. It was the most humbling, unique, amazing experience I've ever had. And because of the way I was treated and the way that I saw them work really to find a cure for muscular dystrophy and the way they treat individuals that fight uh, a muscular dystrophy or, or just have adversity in their life, is some of the, the reasons why we do what we do today through our organization, through a major live event and how we try to take care of people. I learned meeting them that I never had to question where those dollars were going. When I sat down with the president and vice president of Muscular Dystrophy Association and heard Jerry talk, I never questioned again how deeply they wanted to find a cure, how deeply they cared, how deeply they were motivated to eradicate muscular dystrophy, to not have parents lose children anymore at early ages, to, to not have individuals fight this horrible, debilitating disease. So to me, it wasn't demoralizing or uh, charity. I hate the word charity, mm -hmm. but at the same time, to get people involved, you do have to pull on some heartstrings. You've got to tell people how real this is. This is our reality. This isn't, are there things we can do? Sure, there's things we can do, but there's also things we need help with. And if this is a way that we can get there faster, let's go. I still dream of the day of a cure. 
I'm going to drag you down just a second longer and then I'm going to, then I'm going to let you shine um, <laughs> because, you know, I, I, as I read, as I've been reading your bio, I mean, you have taken your life and made it magical in many, many ways, but this road has not been easy. I, I remember reading about some issues with depression, substance abuse, um, many of the things that, that are caused by our lives. And, I would imagine enhanced by a disability that just isn't fair. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that with us? Yeah. Um, when I told you my dad uh, left farming, he became a pastor. So you're going to get a little bit of my, my faith here. Obviously, if you grow up with a pastor's kid, there's two ways. You can either embrace it or you can run away from it. I ran away from it for a long time, Judy, because of kind of what you said. You used a word in that statement that I, I don't wrestle with as much today, but fairness, you know, life's not fair. I try to teach my kids that figure out life is not fair and you can get to being happy a lot quicker. It's not level. The playing field is not level. It never will be level. And, and there are just certain things that are never going to be fair. No matter how hard we try, it's just we make mistakes. We we call it imperfect people. And, and so you can't always level the playing field. And I became very angry about that. And then I was also taught that I was created and that there was a God that loved me. Oh, that did not sit very well with me because I was like, are you kidding me? Is this for my punishment? Did I do something wrong? Is this for his enjoyment or entertainment to watch me suffer and get angry? And then to have a younger brother not have it, and all of a sudden you love farming and you become a town kid. And again, I grew up in the Michael Jordan era, which is sports is king. I mean, I grew up in the high school days of if you don't play sports, you're nothing, you're nobody, you don't exist. And, and so to watch my brother rise, he became a starting football player. That was my dream after farming. It, it was to be the high school uh, inside linebacker starting football. I run out the tunnel. It's Friday night. I put the helmet on. I run through the tunnel and all the cheerleaders are going rah, 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 as I run by. And I was like, this is it. Now my brother got that. My brother got to start basketball. That was my other dream. I'd come running on the court, pretend I could dunk it, even though I'm five foot eight. And, <laughs> and, and then it was, you know, just, it was one thing after the other. And, and I watched him play and I watched him set some records whether it was the assist record or it was this then I watched him leave football to run cross country which back then I didn't even think was a sport that was extremely hard I'm like seriously you bless this kid and he's leaving football to run just run my son now runs cross country he was a four-time state qualifier and I absolutely love cross country but back then I was like dude you're an idiot man play football that's all that matters so I, I grew up with this constant just anger, just absolute anger. And, and I told you a little bit about the faith part. Um, when I was taught I was created, I had to wrestle with this. I've never asked to be here. I never asked to be made, to be put on earth. None of that. I never asked to be here. And yet I'm here and I got to deal with this. That has been extremely challenging for me to walk through and to accept and to understand. 
And so when you add that to watching your brother do almost everything you want to do to not talking about it, oh yeah, it was painful. It was extremely painful. And, and that's where I lost sports as a 15 year old kid. I played basketball, football, baseball. Now I was never a starter. I, I pitched one time in sixth grade because I thought I was a real rock star. The only strike I got is the kid ducked because the ball was coming at his head and it hit the bat. So, <laughs> but my brother was an amazing pitcher and here I am trying to pitch. So I play sports all the way through my freshman year. I, I collapsed twice in football. My legs gave out. Collapsed twice in basketball. My legs gave out. And then in baseball, I was up the bat and a kid that went to a church who threw like a crazy man hit me in the leg. I had the seams marked into my shin. Oh, my. That's I got hit. And that was and not because I got hurt, but that was the end of it. After baseball season, I have never played organized sports again. So when I started this, I said I learned that the things I love get taken from me. First, it was the farm. Now it's sports. And so I'm, I'm being raised in a Christian home with my dad preaching and sharing. And I am so confused because I'm like, why are the things that I love being taken from me? I don't understand this. So that put me on a course of I don't care. I don't give a flying flip about anything. You can't kick me out of sports because I can't play anymore. So I really started to have this rebellious anger that got me in trouble. Because you couldn't take anything away from me anymore. It seemed like everything was taken. So if I didn't want to go to class, I didn't go to class. If I wanted to party, I'd party. And then it goes back to being a teenager because most of this I'm walking through as a teenager. I just want to fit in. So if kids are asking me in a hallway, why do you walk that way? Why does your brother play sports and you don't play? Why did he set the assist record? Blah, blah, blah. I'll do whatever it takes to fit in. I wasn't strong enough as an individual to be like, this is who I am accept me or don't accept me. No, I was, I was a crowd follower. I just wanted to be accepted and, and loved. And when I found it through abusive behavior, that's how I did it. And, and other times it wasn't just because of the abusive behavior. It was because I was angry. And so I rebelled and, and I did things that I knew I, I shouldn't do. And so that's, that's why when you read, I mean, I'll be as frank as I can be with you. The first time I ever attempted suicide, I was in eighth grade. I just didn't want to be here anymore. I was done. I was so angry. I hurt so bad inside that I used to punch walls at night just to let the anger come out. And, and uh, yeah, it was a depressing, dark time back then. It was It was tough. It was really tough. I really appreciate you sharing that, Rob, because so many people don't factor in all of the mental health things that come into play with each consecutive loss, the loss that we experience just as human beings, but then you factor in the, the issues of your disability. But as I said, I was going to turn the corner with you because <laughs> um, something changed. Mm -hmm. Something changed. When, when was that magic moment? So again, I can't shy away from faith because it's all part of the journey. Sure. But it was, it was when my wife came into my life. So I met this beautiful girl in high school. I'll never forget it. I remember her walking into the library one day in these Daisy Duke shorts. And I'm like, yep, 
That's the one right there. That's the one. I love her personality. She's kind of bubbly. She had blonde hair back then. I always had a thing for blondes. You know, now we've been married 24 years and she dyes her hair. Whatever. You know, it's a little darker now. I'm like, when I married you, you were blonde. What happened? Come on. <laughs> um, but yeah, she, uh, we did not date in high school. It wasn't until I was living in Phoenix. And again, I was on a soul searching journey. I was trying to figure out why I was put on this earth. And uh, so I had a lot of conversations with the big man upstairs. You know, I call him God. We had lots of conversations. And uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a faith guy. And, and the Bible has been a part of our life for a long time. And I used to think, you know, in the Old Testament, people got burning bushes and stuff. Why can't I get something like that? You know, a big neon sign. This is why you're here, Rob. So when I was in Arizona, I used to look up in the sky and see where the jets cross paths. And it made an X. And I figured, hey, X marks the spot. This is where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be in Phoenix. Well, God has a funny way of, of showing me differently. And this gal that I always wanted to date back in high school, we end up crossing paths. Again, it was it was after out of a, a tough time. I, I was in Arizona. I kind of left out of rebellion because I was worried if I didn't leave, I'd be in jail or I'd be dead because I was still re rebelling pretty rough back then. Mm. And uh, I went to Phoenix. I had to come back because somebody very close to my parents died. And I decided, you know what? It's time to re start rebuilding a relationship with my parents before it's too late, so to speak. So I came back. It was actually a faith weekend. And Charla, the gal I always wanted to date, was there and ended up driving to a long story. I won't go into it. But anyway, our paths crossed. That's a whole nother story. It's crazy. It's a miraculous story because we hadn't talked in a year. I lived 1,300 miles away. I was dating another girl at the time that I flew back to Iowa with from Arizona. And I ended up going back to the airport with my parents driving. Charlotte, the girl I always wanted to date on one side and the girl I am dating on the other side. Mm. And it was crazy. So needless to say, uh, Charlotte was going to Haiti on a mission trip. I called her shortly after she had gotten back. I was in Arizona. She was in Iowa. And I decided, you know what? I'm 1,300 miles away. I'm going to tell you how I feel. Because if you say no, <laughs> I'll stay in Arizona. It's 1,300 miles away. I probably won't run India. Well, four hours into my courage on that phone call, I said, hey, this is how I feel. And she goes, me too. I said, great. I'll see you in a month. I moved home. That was in March. We were engaged in June. We were married in November. And that changed my world. My wife has taught me what love looks like. We call it servant love. No strings attached. Uh, she, when I married her, I got obviously an extended family. She's got two 11-year-old sisters. They are twins. They're the mouthiest women you'll ever meet. Mm. Uh, in a good way, in a good way. And, and then she has an older brother. The first time I met the twins, one of them looked at me and said, you have MD, so what? Get over it. That was, the, that was my pep talk. I'm like, what am I getting into? <laughs> They're like, if you want to jump out of an airplane, if you want to drive a tractor, drive a semi, we'll do it. You know, you want to go boating, you want to ride a jet ski, we'll figure it out. And they have been so right. It's, it's been unbelievable. And when you get around that, when you have a calloused heart, the way I call it, my heart was so hard at that time. It was so, it was so hurt. It was, it was broken. 
But when you get around individuals that are like, we'll, we'll make some things possible. You know, we, we, we won't take no for an answer and we will love you unconditionally. Those scales start to fall away. And the one thing watching that, because as I said, my, my wife and I have been married 24 years now to see that love model day in and day out changed my world. The best story that I can give you is we were in Minneapolis. I get to travel for, for what I do. And back then I would wheel my wheelchair to the door of the men's room. She would stand me up and then I would walk into the men's room and go to the bathroom or she'd hold the door. I'd wheel my wheelchair into the bathroom and then my wheelchair would lift me up to where I could stand on my own, use a urinal and come out. This particular time she had held the door. I wheeled in in my wheelchair. I was putting it up so I could climb out of it myself, get to the, to the bathroom. And a guy walked in behind me. And he goes, do you mind if I ask? Or at first he said, do you need help? I'm like, no, buddy, I'm good. I, I can do this on my own. Then he goes, do you mind if I ask? I said, what? He goes, what was the accident? I said, ah, no, no. He went, he asked if he could help. He went to the bathroom, obviously beat me out. And by the time I did my thing, put the chair down, got back in the chair, washed my hands. He was long out of the bathroom. He stopped my wife on the outside. And he goes, is that your husband in there? And when I share the story, I usually go, no, she was like, no, that's not my husband. <laughs> but no, she said, yeah, that's my husband. She goes, why? He goes, well, do you mind if I ask what the accident was? And he goes, I'm a pharmacist. I'm just curious. And she goes, there was there was no accident. And, and the stranger goes, so you knew? She goes, yeah, he has muscular dystrophy. I knew and this stranger looks at my wife in this restaurant in Minneapolis and goes, and you married him anyway? Like, what? Why would you marry him if you knew oh. this was the progress? And then this stranger looked at my wife because my wife goes, yeah, I married him anyway. And that stranger looked at my wife and goes, now that's love. And he walked away. That's what has changed me. That and having faith. And, and seeing the beautiful things in the world, understanding there is adversity, there are challenges. I some days have way more questions than I have answers, but I have found a hope that I hold on to. I, I believe in a better tomorrow. I, I, I believe that there is a purpose for why I'm on this earth. I, I believe, you know, what my wife models to me, I want to model to other people. I want to model it to our kids. It, it's, it's going from darkness, depression, substance abuse, wanting to die to, okay, this sucks. I'm not going to lie. There are days it sucks. It's challenging. It's painful, but it's 59 degrees, sunny, no wind, Northwest Iowa. I got a beautiful wife. I got three great kids. I love what I do. Man, I really like life. And I, you got a haircut. And, it, and, and I it got shows. a haircut. You are so much more. I mean, you've taken us on a journey of your disability, but you are so much more than that disability. Would you mind sharing with our listeners all the things that Rob does in this world? Sure. So I, I mentioned earlier that I was on the national telethon back in 2001, 2002. I remember when I got that phone call because I was going to school. I was going to college because when I asked my soon-to-be father-in-law, if I could marry his daughter, he's like, that's fine, but you're going to college. 
because you're never going to work with your hands. You know, you're going to have to get a four year degree or whatever. And I was like, I hated school. I was like, oh, do I have to? Do I got Okay, I want to marry her. So I'll go to four year school. Going to school, think I'm going to be a teacher. And I'm like, nope, not going to be a teacher. Well, what can I, maybe I'll be, well, what can I get done the soonest was really what I asked my advisor. And they're like, business. I'm like, great, sign me up. Put me in business school. Maybe I'll go into banking or whatever. So I'm in uh, school. All of a sudden, that faith thing kicks in. I had to go to some Bible classes at this particular school. And all of a sudden, I've grown up with my dad being a pastor, but the Bible became so real to me. I'm just like, whoa, you want to talk about some crazy stuff? Yeah, pick that book up. You'll find all kinds of stuff in there. And so I'm like, wow, huh? I wonder what that would be like to share that. And and all of a sudden, I've gone from brokenness and heartache to wanting to take my life to now embracing life. And I heard, and you can argue this or not, but I heard, go tell your story. (laughs) I'm like, no, I'm not going to go tell kids I screwed up. I'm not going to go tell kids I want to take my life. I'm not going to go tell people that. Go tell your stuff. Nope. Argued for about two years on it. End up graduating college, started an organization called Rise Ministries when I was 25 years old, 2001. And it's sharing the story, the story of brokenness, the story of confusion, the story of heartache, the story of of hurt, the story of being compared and and less than. And, And so we start sharing that story. Then I get the opportunity to go on the national telephone and share it with 63 million viewers. I told you it was the most crazy experience I've ever had. And it was, it was crazy. And and then we start sharing at youth groups and we start sharing at some conferences. And then it's like, well, I'm not going to make it just being a speaker. We need to build an entire ministry around this. So we do, we start building a ministry. We do a little radio program. That's 60 seconds food for thought that ends up going I think when it was all said and done, maybe 300 stations around the country, something like that for teenagers. And then we did some other stuff. And then we realized we started a magazine for teens. And then we realized teens don't really read magazines. So we stopped doing that. And we started, we kept speaking. And then in 2005, somebody came to me and said, hey, you ever thought about doing a Christian music festival? (laughs) No, no. Why would I do that? There's one 60 miles down the road. I, I don't even know what that looks like. And so we, we started looking at that, and um, that uh, was the opportunity to be like, okay, are, are we going to do that? Are we not going to do that? And so we did start a, uh, a festival back in 2005, a, a Christian music festival, and that has grown into almost 18,000 people over two days in our small little community of Northwest Iowa. We now do a podcast called Enjoy the Journey, where I get to interview some amazing guests. I still get the opportunity to travel and speak. Last week, I was in Kentucky and Nashville. I get to sit on the DD Council. I've sat on other boards. I sit on the Christian Festival Association board, where there are 32 other festivals from across the country. We get together once a year in Nashville. I get the opportunity uh, to own a couple businesses with partnerships. So I still have my fingers in in business. It's when I said earlier, the things that I love were kind of taken from me. Yes, they were, but they've come back around. 
And so I now get to dabble just a little bit in agriculture. So where we host our festival, there's 66 acres to take care of. We were just blessed enough to, to build a permanent stage. It's over a half million dollar stage that, that we were able to do during COVID. I mean, I mean, last year, right before Easter, I got a call and said, hey, we're going to move this building off site. Rob, would you have any use to have this building on the Rise Fest grounds? And oh, by the way, you have a week to decide and you got to have it moved in two months. Oh, fantastic. Well, anyway, we ended up dissecting that into three separate buildings. Uh, we get to partner with other organizations. It's just an incredible journey or ride, whatever word you want to use to describe it. I, our son, who uh, is 19, just joined the, the National Guard. I got back in December and has come on board with us as our church and partner relations guy. So I'm working with him day in and day out. And then he gets to, he doesn't always like this so much, but he gets to be my arms and legs and travel with me. And he's like, dad, I thought I loved traveling, but I don't like it as much as I used to. I'm like, well, shut up, get in the car. We got to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it, it is an incredible time right now. I, I've been able to do this now for 21 years. That's kind of a, a, a daily basis of, of what's going on with, with myself and Rise. And we have a team. We have a team of uh, just about eight or 11 of us. We just had our meeting last night. And yeah, there's about 41 of us that, that put on a festival that will host hopefully 18 to 20,000 people in a couple months. I was just going to say that we'll have to connect off site after the podcast, because I have some, some thoughts about um, accessibility of missions and festivals and that kind of thing for those of us who have other disabilities. So um, yes, that'll be a fun conversation to have. Um, We do really need to, to begin wrapping up and one, and I'm stealing Judy's thunder. Unbelievable. But one of the things that questions that Judy likes to ask and what we all do is, and you've got a long life ahead of you. So this may, this may sound a little premature, but if you could pick one thing right now uh, that you could see as a legacy that you would like to leave behind, what would that be? Oh, it's a fantastic question. I wish I could articulate that that question. And maybe you have already in many respects in terms of your faith and the importance of love, but is, are there other, right. is there something when, else? When we look back on Rob's life, what will we yeah. say? I hope that you will say he never quit. You know, he wanted to make this world a better place. You know, will I ever be, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. kind of guy? I would love to say yes. I would love to say that that we put our efforts together to make this world a better place, that we continued on, that that the things that were so much bigger than us, that were so important to accomplish, we gave it our best effort. I really want people to, to look back and be like, yeah, he walked through some hard things, but he had a hope and a faith that I want to know about. What was it that he held on to? What, 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 what was that? Why, why did he talk about his faith so much? Why did he believe in, in a better tomorrow? Um, why did he care for people the way that he cared? Or why did he get involved where he got involved? Just, just that kind of stuff. I, you know, when I take my last breath, I just hope it made a difference. 
Honestly, that's what it comes down to. And, and right now, not only is it faith in telling people about hope, that is huge to me. I mean, that's what I do on a daily basis. But the, the other side of that is what we're doing right now, this podcast, this idea of disabilities, this idea of realizing where we're failing and how we can do it better. How can we make life better for individuals such as myself that have a disability where we're falling short? whether that's helping them stay employed, it's caregivers, it's education. Uh, that's really what I want to be a part of. Hey, Rob, your-, your legacy is, comes straight from when Harry met Sally. Mike, I'll take some of what he's having, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're living yeah. out your legacy, which is really awesome. And um, I, it's just been a real pleasure to, to be able to spend some time. We could spend a whole other hour, but we're uh, being given the, the signal, the old clock on the wall or whatever you want to yep. say. So, so you Understand. know, I just want, want to thank you so much for you to take your time um, out of your day to share so much of yourself with us. And I'd also like to thank our listeners for joining us and invite you to stay tuned for another podcast soon. And Judy, I'd like to turn it over to you for any final thoughts. Well, Rob, I mentioned when we started that my office was about 92 degrees. I got goosebumps. So thank you. I love that you you talked about the intersectionality of, of faith and disability. And really, you talked about life. So this ended up being Absolutely. just raising life um, yes. that happens to include disability, which we all will experience. So we cannot thank you enough for sharing your intimate story with us. And this bit of yourself. Sure. So Mike, bring us home. Well, this has been another Disability Exchange podcast. We thank you, as I said, our, our listeners. Special thanks to Rob and for our friends at the Midwest Public Health Training Center for making this a reality and, and making us look good. So once again, we'll say goodbye for now. And please join us again soon for another episode of Disability Exchange. Thank you for joining us today on Disability Exchange. Disability Exchange is produced by the University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, which is housed at the Center for Disabilities and Development at the University of Iowa. Special thanks to Kyle Delvaux for the music contribution. <laughs>